0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 288, where Brian Alexander describes his new book, Academia Next.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing
0: human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I'm excited to be welcoming back to the show Brian Alexander, this time to share about his new book, Academia Next. Brian Alexander is an internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher working in the field of how technology transforms education. He completed his English, Language, and Literature PhD at the University of Michigan in 1997 with a dissertation on doppelgangers in Romantic-era fiction and poetry. Then Brian taught literature, writing, multimedia, and information technology studies, Centenary College of Louisiana. There he also pioneered multi-campus interdisciplinary classes while organizing an information literacy initiative. Brian is currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University and teaches graduate seminars in their learning, design, and technology program. Brian Alexander, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. It's great to be back.
0: I love anytime I get to hear your voice, but it's extra special when we're actually talking to each other and today seeing each other.
1: Well, it's wonderful to hear you. I mean, it's wonderful to speak with you. I would say it's wonderful to hear you, but I hear you every week, and it's just part of the goodness that's part of my life.
0: Well, thank you so much. I don't get to quite hear you every week, but there are plenty of opportunities, and one that's been so fun to revisit is just your work as a futurist. So I thought we would start out with just... What on earth does a futurist do? How does a futurist work?
1: Oh, I'm happy to talk about that. Futurists help people think about the future. We help people plan, we help people imagine, we help open their minds to possibilities and we give them tools for anticipating and grappling with what's coming up down the pike. Personally, my focus is the future of higher education. so I work with mostly American colleges and universities along with colleges and universities and North Africa and Europe, some in East Asia, along with businesses, governments, nonprofits that work in that, in or adjacent to that space. So to do that, I do lots of consulting. I do lots of presentations. I make media from videos to audio. I write books. I host video conferences. Those are all the the servo mechanisms behind the machine.
0: And can you talk about how you keep score? Maybe maybe just in general at first, as you're looking at trends that have been identified, as you're looking at other futurists' work, and then how have you kept score also on yourself and are those, are those things different at all?
1: Well, sure. This is a controversial topic in the futures community because a lot of futurists, a lot of forecasters like to avoid what they call the P word for prediction. They like to say that they're not offering a crystal ball, that what they're offering are possibilities. And, and that's very fair. But as you model the future and the future hurdles on past you, I think it's a really, really useful thing to check how you did and then to apply that to your own method. There are a lot of people who do this. And it's very important to do. So, for example, I mean, I'm proud of some things and I'm bashful about the things I got wrong. Mm-hmm. From around 2000 to 2007, I walked around telling everybody that mobile devices were going to be huge and they were everywhere in the world except for the U.S., And then the U.S. people said, yeah, I don't know, Palm Pilot, not such a big deal. I said, no, no, look at mobile phones. Like, Well, we've got the Blackbird. There's more coming. No, I don't know about that. Then 2007, the iPhone comes out. People are like, oh, mobile phones, I got it. And then they they run with it. So that was exciting.
0: That's one that you see as... One that you're more bashful about because the timing wasn't.
1: Mm-mm. No, that's one I'm very happy. About. Oh, I was um, going to say
0: I'm, I'm I'm confused. That sounds like a great success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, oh, it is. It is one yeah.
1: bashful. About. Oh, there there are a couple of things I'm bashful about. One is college sports because it revealed a blind spot for me. From 2000 to 2010 or so, I thought that colleges and universities, many of them, would cut back on college sports. And listeners can start laughing derisively right now at me. Um, I built my case thinking that first, there was a huge financial hit based on the Great Recession. And second, there is a whole slew of terrible, terrible scandals ranging from cheating to rape that just rippled across higher education. There are lots and lots of publicity about that. There is the budding fear about head injury for football. But of course, as most of your listeners will know, I was completely wrong, that the economic case doesn't matter for most higher athletics. And we are perfectly willing to bypass, ignore, or even celebrate the hideous crimes and errors Along the way. So that taught me that I was blind to college sports, and I spent a lot of time researching to catch up on that.
0: You have a new book that, as of this recording, either has just come out or will just come out. I'm not sure exactly where we're going to hit, but tell us about the origins of the book and a little bit about your methodologies.
1: Sure. The book came up based on research I've been doing for almost 10 years. So I've been tracking major trends as they reshape higher education with an eye on technology. And so I do that in part with a monthly trends analysis that I publish called the Future Trends The Technology and Education Report. And so that has a map of almost 90 trends that we've been tracking. And because we've been doing this for so long, we've got good longitudinal data. We can see which ones have gotten a lot of support and which ones have faded. And that's really, really interesting. So I wanted to get this in print. I wanted to share these conclusions with people. And I've been doing that out loud through presentations around the world, but I wanted to prose it and I wanted to really give it the book length exploration so I could ground every trend and evidence and then extrapolate. You know, what happens if these trends in augmented reality and open education and adjunctification, what happens if they unfold further and progress? So one of the methods that I use is trend analysis, you know, taking a look at major change drivers in the present, grounding them with evidence and then seeing how they might play out in the future. The other method I use is what's called scenarios. You know, a scenario in the future sense is a story about the future. It's based on one or two things usually, and you create a vision of the world or the part of the world that you're interested in. And so I picked uh, a series of trends that I thought were most interesting and also hardest to predict, and I used those to create a bunch of different scenarios. I have a library of about Forty right now that I like to present from, and they range everything from what's it like to have higher education in an age of surveillance dystopia, to what happens if healthcare becomes leading sector of higher education, to how education changes if open education wins versus if open education loses, and so in the book I picked a clutch of these scenarios and developed them at length so that readers can really try to imagine what it would be like to be in a campus in the future if certain things come to pass. So those are the two big methods in the book, trends and scenarios.
0: Your titles, every one of them just grabs me, but let's pick the first trend because it's one of my favorites. And that is objects in mirror, maybe closer than they appear. What can you tell us about this trend?
1: Well, thank you, by the way. I'm, I'm The title of this scenario should grab you. And it should be memorable. That's So I've succeeded in that. So hurrah. That's very good. The idea was to look into trends that are in and around education that don't involve technology. So that includes, for example, demographics, that includes economics, that includes a whole series of fields. And I'll just touch on a few of these now that are really, I think, the most important. And one of them is demographics, and demographics tell you that right now we're experiencing an amazing time in human history—an unprecedented, completely weird time where we are reproducing less and less than ever before. You know, in human history, we've you know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years we've tried to grow our populations by spawning as many children as possible. The typical couple, or you know, normally, i.e., the typical woman would have. More than three children. The idea would be to try to, you know, power through infant mortality, childhood disease, and all of that, and to grow populations. And from about the year 1800 to about the year 1970, we did that. And the human population swelled enormously. And in higher education, higher education around the world grew as the number of students needed to go through higher education grew. But starting around 1970, I mean, it really depends on where you look at this, we changed our pattern of fertility. So the average woman has you know, dropped it from, say, four children to three children to two. And in some countries, it's below two, which means unless those countries enjoy immigration, their total population will shrink. And we've seen that in countries like Japan, South Korea, lots of Europe. In fact, there was just a news item that said that last year, uh, South Korea's fertility rate was 0.98, which meant that the you know, the average couple would have less than one child, basically. Just less. So, what does this matter for education? Well, one thing is this is a trend that's very deep and very large. It's not something that's quick, like a new piece of hardware. It's something that's really baked in that we're going to be experiencing for a long time. And then it has impacts all up and down education. It means that K through 12 is going to be experiencing fewer and fewer kids which on the plus side could mean reduced teacher-student ratios. On the negative side, it may mean laying off teachers or closing schools. And it comes to higher education, you know, we've been for a century basically growing higher education. And you go back and you think of uh, the real growth of the land-grant universities. You think of Sputnik. You think of the baby boom generation. You think of the 1980s pushing more and more kids through higher education. Well, that's going to back up now. We no longer have that more and more children to educate. And so that has ramifications for everything. That means every university and college, it depends on tuition for revenue, i.e. 98% of them, is now going to be struggling to try to get more and more students in the door. It means that inter-campus collaboration is going to be harder and harder to do as competition heats up. It means that we're also going to be looking at the older part of our population. So one end of demographics is us having fewer kids. The other end is us living longer and longer. I mean, in the US for the past few years, we had this weird phenomenon of the uh, adult white population starting to live a little less longer. But overall, the big picture is humans living longer and longer time, which and that's due to all kinds of wonderful things, greater public health, wonderful medicine, all kinds of things. That means that we should expect to see more and more higher education addressing more and more adult learners, including senior citizens. So that really transforms education, as we know. Just this, just this morning, Bonnie, this isn't one of my picks. Just this morning, there was a piece in Inside of Higher Ed about how colleges are, try, quote, trying to figure out how to introduce a growing population of older students to their campuses. The headline is orientation for the adult learner. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just going to play in all kinds of ways. Here's a, a second way. Enrollment. For the past 20 years, enrollment patterns in undergraduate education have shifted very, very clearly. Certain fields have grown. Certain fields have shrunk. And in some ways, there aren't many surprises to those have been following along. STEM fields continue to grow. Business continues to grow. Allied health, so everything you know from radiology to surgery to hospital administration continues to grow. The humanities, on the other hand, continue to shrink. You know, foreign languages, literature, history are just dwindling like mad across the country, and there are all kinds of reasons for this, which we can go into. But that has implications for, again, everything in higher education: how we structure core curricula, who we hire, the types of campuses we have. I can go on at quite some length, i.e., the length of a book about this. But those are those, those are, I mean, enrollment and demographics are two of the trends that I find especially powerful.
0: I'm interested to hear you share about, I mean, I'm interested in everything you just said, but also about the virtual learning environment and the changes there. But I wonder if you could start first with the present, because that word is not commonly used in all countries. So can you kind of define that term for us? Tell us where we are now, and then tell us where you predict that we are headed.
1: Oh, sure. VLE is the international term for what in the U.S. we call the LMS, the learning management system. That's what the Wikipedia page is. So, if you're looking, if you want to learn about Blackboard or something, you go to the VLE page. Uh, Learning Management System, or VLE, is a bit of software that reproduces some aspects of classroom and class management online. They date back to the 1990s. The The most popular ones include Blackboard and Canvas, as well as Moodle, which is an open source one. And they, they have the capacity to do a lot of stuff, including to monitor discussions, to share class work, to have a grade book, to have quizzes. Unfortunately, generally speaking, all the research I've seen shows that the most common use of the LMS or VLE is for a faculty member to push some documents to the students, you know, i.e. a syllabus and some handouts. So where I see this going, well, right now, the LMS VLE market is pretty mature and pretty stable. We have some well-established players. Uh, we have a relative newcomer, Canvas, which is doing very, very well. And the changes that are happening in them year by year are largely incremental. Try, you know, Tweaking this, improving that, modifying this feature, all of them trying to get their mobile versions better and better, that kind of thing. So this could unfold in one of two ways we could simply see the LMS, VLE world continue along that path for the next 20 years. There's a lot of precedent for that. Think about PowerPoint, think about Excel, think about Microsoft Word. All those Office tools are completely recognizable to someone from 1998. Yeah, they, they have new suffixes. Yeah, they've got more bells and whistles, and Word has the you know, uh, ribbon now, but the basic thing is still there. So it's possible we keep doing that with the LMS. On the other hand, there is the idea of what some call next-generation digital learning environment. It's predicated on the idea that you could create an LMS designed for kind of the middle of the 21st century. So you think, well, what kind of technologies do we use now? What's the digital environment like? So you might think about open content, you might think about a lot more hyperlinking, you might think about a far simpler interface. I mean, you think now, how many interfaces are really designed for mobile phones? And so the interfaces tend to be simpler because you've got a smaller screen and instead of a tiny little arrow pointer, you've got a big finger. So imagine a next-generation digital learning environment that is, say, designed first for the mobile phone and may have several different components that communicate with each other and bounce back and forth that may be more interactive, They have more game-like features, and they may be more invested in the open web in terms of open content and hyperlinking. That'd be a very, very different tool. So it's possible we could go down that road. So, those are two different paths. And it's, you know, the future is we like to follow the rules of improv and do yes and or both and. So, we'll possibly have both of those at once.
0: The thing that I've heard about learning management systems versus virtual learning environments is just that the whole aspect of management and some of the ethical considerations that come out. And I will admit, I really paid a lot of attention in the past to like, how many clicks? Did they actually click on the thing? Or are they just telling me? Are they lying to me that they clicked on the thing? And I have a very different viewpoint today. I suspect I probably have areas I still need to get pushed in and testing my own ethical boundaries and what are these tools for? But I'm curious your comments just about the ways in which maybe your ethical views have changed or you've just seen through some of these trends where... We're trying to increase the usefulness of these, or we're trying to increase our ability to surveil our students. Where where are you seeing those tensions come in, either for yourself or for what you're researching?
1: Well, as a researcher, I see these trends in tension. So on the one hand, there's the move to get as much student data as possible and to do things with it, to run all kinds of analyses, ranging from simple analysis to applying AI. And we've already seen a range of positive effects of that, and we've seen also possibilities that can go beyond that. Everything from the great work at Georgia State to improve retention to different faculty members being able to redirect class resources for students. Especially this is the thing that works well, Bonnie, at scale. So not the kind of thing you might do in a seminar of six people, but when you're talking about a class of 600 or an undergraduate class of, say, 10,000, then at that kind of scale, that kind of big data can be really, really helpful and really useful. And we're just starting to see how this can work out. On the countervailing side, we have the fear of surveillance, and that fear ranges from the thoughtful to the goofy. But we do have a lot of rising anxiety about this. Like, to give you one anecdote. Last fall, I taught a seminar, a graduate seminar at Georgetown, and I asked my students what technology they wanted to use. And they said they wanted to use the LMS because it felt more secure than things on the open web. So I think that's, that's an interesting dynamic. And the security goes in a different direction other than data, which is you asked me how I changed. For about 20 years, I believe firmly in the open web and then having students learn and share their learning on the open web in as many ways as possible. And I've done that in my practice. I've done that in my teaching and research. But since Gamergate, I've been more equivocal about this. I wonder, is this really the best way forward when we have people who can attack you for reasons of identity or for politics or just for lulls? So I'm wondering now, not just my personal practice, but looking at the, the broader field, if this might be a vote for maintaining the present LMS VLE model, because it is a silo, because it is closed off in the open web, and that might be a refuge from trolls. So I think we might see that happen as well.
0: I'm guessing that part of that is you may not have been as susceptible to some of the trolls, but recognizing that some of your students, based on their identities, may find themselves as victims of these trolls. Is that part of your story as well,
1: not really. Um, my I've had my classes research this phenomenon of online abuse as far back as the late 1990s. This has been the subject of a great deal of research. And there's a very, very famous essay on this written by Julian Dibble called A Rape in Cyberspace, mm-hmm. which is from, I believe, 1995. And I've had my students doing work online as well. And some of them have been subject to probes or challenges that were very very unpleasant now this is before gamergate this is before this happened at scale and without getting their approval i don't want to share them but these were not based on their identity these were always based on the subjects that they wrote about so to pick a hypothetical example one that didn't happen if we had students researching say darwin and published a paper to the open web on evolution there's some probability that they may get attacked or criticized or just pushed back on by a young earth creationist who would say, well, that's clearly wrong, blah, 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 blah. So again, that's not identity so much as, as the content of what they're writing about. And since Gamergate, yeah, I've had friends who've been abused and attacked online. I have friends or friends who suffered far worse, partly because of their identity, partly because of what they were writing about, sometimes for... Identities that didn't even uh, really apply. Now, we've just seen this grow and we're also more aware of it than before. So, again, that makes me very equivocal in my approach to a personal approach to teaching. And when I look at the broader world, I can see there's a, a lot of instructors, a lot of students would have second thoughts about sharing their work on the open web.
0: Has your approach been then to offer options or to live more inside the? the supposed protection of the virtual learning environment?
1: For my students, for my clients, for anybody I work with, I always give them the options. And and then I always try to give them as much information as possible, not overwhelming them. And so we see what they pick and what they'd like to do. I've done this in my classes of digital storytelling, the classes of educational technology, when I do back channels, when I give a keynote presentation. I mean, I like to make sure people think about this and pick the right way. For my own work as an independent, As someone who is, I mean, I run my own business, I don't have a net, I try to be careful about what I say online because I can't risk blowback. If I decide to weigh in on something that isn't immediately critical to my work, for example, just to pick a hypothetical one, if I decide to complain about the genocide of Armenians under the late Ottoman Empire in the early 1900s, if I did, I might get people, that's a predictable problem where people will just yell at you for this, that's a classic problem. That doesn't benefit me, doesn't play in. So I tend to avoid a lot of those issues because at best, they yield me nothing and at worst, they cost me badly, either in terms of my reputation or my business, and both. Again, I'm independent, I, I don't have a tenure, I'm not backed up by an institution full-time, so... On the other side, I'm as open as possible. I share my thoughts, my research, my work on Twitter. I use Twitter, I use Facebook, I use LinkedIn, I use Mastodon, I blog a lot, I make videos, I make podcasts, I get interviewed by great podcasters like you, so I'm happy to be as open as possible because for me, that makes my work better. It makes me sharper, I get more pushback, I get more fact-checking, I get more information, it's like the old open source adage you know that you know, there are always more experts outside of the house than inside. With more eyeballs, my work can become better and better. It doesn't always work. Sometimes I share something and nobody cares. That happens. Um, sometimes I share something and people go wild with it. But really, I try to make social media and the open web work for me, and it really does.
0: What I think I hear you saying is that you it isn't necessarily about shying away from controversial topics. it's shying away from controversial topics that don't represent the purpose and your mission of why you do the work mm-hmm. you do. So if it came down to mm-hmm. criticizing a learning management system you or around these tensions we talked about with privacy or that 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 wouldn't be something mm-hmm. that would hold you back. Because that learning Correct. management system company might become angry with you, but the people that fuel your mm-hmm. work, that's that's mm-hmm. part of your mission. So but the auto exactly. empire not as much.
1: <laughs> no, if there's yeah. if there's a horrible article in a prominent position, say the Chronicle of Higher Red or NPR or the New York Times, and it gets something really, really wrong about higher education finance or about demographics or about technology, yeah, I'm happy to go to war against it. In fact, I've done a series of blog posts, which are usually titled, How Not to Write About X, <laughs> uh, where I just demolish one, because I, I, I think it's stupid. Maybe I can do some service in trying to help the the discourse a bit. But yeah, I have, to, I have to pick and choose my battles. And I may have a hobby interest in something, but I don't want to express it. I mean, I'm an independent researcher, independent scholar running a business. I have to be careful in what I do and what I don't do.
0: I've heard that from so many people from lots of different aspects, but just that importance of knowing thyself, knowing what's most important, what is the core mission of why you do. And and then some of that comes with great influence. You have an amazing influence but what, what, how could it be best used? And Ottoman Empire, yeah. we come back to, not a great way to use it.
1: No, it wouldn't. And, and to come back to, the, to if I can go back to another trend that I think is, is really, really stark and mm-hmm. still not fully appreciated, the majority of faculty in the United States are adjunct. Uh, that's the first time that's happened since uh, around 1920. That tenure has been that scarce on the ground. A lot of American culture still thinks of higher education as dominated by uh, tenured faculty. And a few institutions are. Uh, Elite liberal arts institutions, some of the top R1s really still do that, but generally speaking, the majority is adjunct, and that proportion is increasing. The number of that is increasing as well. And so those are faculty who have no expectations of protection of academic freedom. I mean, time and time again, just about every few days, we hear a story about some professor who has said something on social media and caused blowback. It's usually political. And left or right doesn't matter, or something. And inevitably, they have a greater chance of being able to survive the blowback if they have tenure. Now, not always. The Chronicle had a, a very, very dark piece uh, a couple of days ago by the yeah. former scholar Stephen Salaita. He was uh, hired by an American university to a tenured job. He accepted it. They offered him, And basically, he was moving cross-country to pick up that job when the president, and I'm just, it's a complicated story, but basically the president and some of the board found some of his tweets that were in opposition to the Israeli government and decided to block his hiring, and they successfully did. It led to a complicated legal case, and now the fellow basically drives a school bus. And his piece was on, you know, how thin the protections of academic freedom are. Now, for him, writing about Israel-Palestinian relationships made sense, since he was a scholar of indigenous peoples and this fit into his research. For me right now, I almost never write about Arab-Israeli relations insofar as I research international higher education. So you know, I'll note these things in passing, but that's not crucial to my work.
0: By the way, I'm taking copious notes and we'll link to everything that you're sharing so people can do a little bit further reading. That's a, I do remember seeing that one. Yeah, talk about complicated too, but you distilled it down well for us. So we're into now some scenarios. You've shared many of the trends that you explored in your new book, but I would love to hear now about the open education triumphants.
1: So this is based on, in some ways, this is the least imaginative scenario that I've ever made. So what you can do with trends is you can plot them backwards in time and get some metrics, You know, pick any number, and then extrapolate them forward in time. So you can take, for example, something like you know, population and work it backwards and say how far forward it will go. But as you can see, as I mentioned before, sometimes that doesn't work out. Sometimes the future twists and turns in different ways. Here, what I just took were some of the metrics for open education resources. So those OER refers to documents, texts that are openly available, usually for free or for very, very low price. And also, I looked at open access and scholarly publication, and that's the whole field where you mix scholarly materials, primarily research articles, but also journal articles, but also monographs, you make those available, again, openly and either for free or for a very, very low cost. And I just looked at the total amount of those in the world and the proportion of those being used and how they were growing, and I just put that forward and said, all right, when, when will those become the majority? Of usage? You know, when will most students use OER instead of traditional textbooks? When will most scholarship be in open formats? And when that happens, some people call this the flip, right? So when does the majority flip to open? When that happens, how does the world change? How does the university change? Now, I'm pro-open in both of those cases. A lot of people are. There are groups like Spark you know, that are all about agitating for more open. And I think that's great. But I really want this to be a balanced scenario. I didn't want it to be utopia. So I outloaded a bunch of positive features, but also some problems. So for example, one of the positive features is lower costs. So lower costs for students, lower costs for faculty, having to buy articles or textbooks, and lower costs for libraries, having to buy these materials. Another is greater creativity. Uh, so for example, you know, I have in my hand right now a book which we're going to mention in a little while, and it's not available open. It's a great book, but I can't do anything with it as an instructor. I can't modify the text, I can't remix it or anything. But if it were open, then I could. Then I could blend it with another book, I could remix it, I could change the order of it, that kind of thing. Faculty can be more creative, students can be more creative, and on top of that, there's the advantage that some present-day geopolitical inequities might be rebalanced. So if you look at most of the developing world or the global south right now, you can see that many of their libraries suffer from just not having enough volumes because they haven't been able to historically afford access to this and some still can't, and that's a real challenge that really holds back scholarly development in a lot of these countries. You think about Sub-Saharan Africa, you think of parts of Central Asia, parts of Southeast Asia. Well, how great it would be if you were a scholar in Rwanda or a scholar in Pakistan. Instead of having to just not see most of your field, but to be able to have access to it, that would be fantastic. A mini-Renaissance could unfold. So those are some of the great positive things. Man, I thought about some of the negatives. I mean, some of the things that we've seen with lots of open content in terms of the open source software. And one of those is that authorship can be spurious at times. Bonnie, I have to ask, have you ever had any of your writing pirated before?
0: I would not describe it as pirated where it's word for word, but my goodness, was that ever a very liberal paraphrasing? Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I-, I won't mention the name of the organization, but I thought that is about 85% of what I wrote, but you know, I, they did link back to the original article. So, you know, they were using the content and were clear about where they got it from. But yeah, I don't know. How about well, you?
1: <laughs> well, I, I remember the first time one of my books got pirated. I, I was so, I was so happy. Mm. I, I thought, oh, you know, someone carriage. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And it's a book that actually sells well. I mean, it's in the second edition now. But I mean, that first one, I was like, oh, this is so sweet. But then I I found an article of mine completely copied and republished by somebody else um, without attribution. And I I was really ticked. Well, with open, that becomes easier and easier to do. Mm. So it's possible that we might go back to, say, the 18th century, where authorship becomes kind of hard to pin down. And people often publish under pseudonyms. And we have some of that now. You could think, you know, the inventor of Bitcoin, uh, blockchain technology, still we don't know who it is. That was a pseudonym. The inventor of the term stochastic terrorism, we still don't know who that was. So it may be that we see a kind of new age of spurious authorship or dubious authorship. Another problem is with open, there could be issues of the quality degrading. So there's a wonderful book on the history of the book by Adrian Johns where he takes a look at book printing in the 17th and 18th centuries. And please, listeners, don't start snoring if you hear that. It's actually a fantastic book, because one of the things he tries to figure out is why the British invented copyright, because it was a bizarre invention that came out of nowhere, and nobody else was doing it. And one of the reasons they came up with copyright was, according to Johns, that science publishing was starting to suffer in bad quality. Okay, so you know the Xerox of the Xerox of the Xerox gets worse and worse over time? Well, the same thing was starting to happen in scientific publication, that people would copy a chart of Galileo's and leave out 5% of it. Then that way, it copied and leave out 5%. And so kind of foundation of science, of reproducibility, it was getting harder and harder to do. So with copyright, which is the early 18th century in Britain, publishers had to register their publications in a central location. Now you had authoritative editions, and in theory, the quality went up. And obviously, the scientific revolution has rocketed ahead since then. So it's possible that we'll see problems with quality. And then we'll have to devise new methods, maybe you know, akin to but not equal to, copyright in order to grapple with them. So I, I think overall, uh, a better world, but with some challenges.
0: Another area I'd love to have you explore before we get to the recommendation segment is the one you titled Augmented Campus.
1: So, Bonnie, have you played with any augmented reality stuff?
0: I have. I have done stuff with the kids, in fact, just yesterday in the Lego store. Now, if you go into it, they're fascinated Mm -hmm. by being able to pick up the boxes and hold them in front of a camera that's right there in the store and things will begin to appear and make those things come to life. And then I have a running joke with a colleague because she thinks I like to play too much with technology and she just wants to know first how it's useful. By the way, she's way more technical than I am, just to be clear (laughs) on that. But they recently on Flipgrid, which is a video tool Mm -hmm. that I like to have, they have augmented reality now. And so we had new faculty and they recorded introductions of themselves and I hung the QR codes which then if you play them within the app will show up with them introducing themselves to our new faculty. And I still think nice. she's right in the sense of like, could we've accomplished the same thing just by a QR code that went to the video. Like, did it matter that they were floating in front of the sign? No, but I like to play. I don't always come up with it until I just start playing and experimenting. And I don't always know where we're headed in those processes. So you can tell I'm very excited about this. <laughs> so far, awesome. I've gotten to a lot of playing and not a lot of practicality, but we're going to get there, I think, maybe.
1: <laughs> oh, that sounds terrific. I mean, so augmented reality, you, you've experienced this, and, and listeners, the, the term—if you're new to it—the term dates back to the 1990s, and it refers simply to taking digital content and tying it to the physical world, either to a geographical location or to where you are with the device. So, if you've ever used uh, mapping tools with a mobile device, like say Google Maps or Apple Maps, with your iPhone or your Android phone, and you know as you walk along, it tells you where you are and points of directions. That's a form of augmented reality. Pokemon Go is a really kind of like the, the big coming out party for augmented reality. There are a lot of different versions of this, Well, we can increasingly add more digital stuff to the physical world. And I thought, what would happen to a campus that embraced that at its core? So imagine going across a campus, a physical campus now. And with your device, whatever the device is, it could be you take an, an iPad. Uh, for example, my students uh, last past spring took a whole class to the uh, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. They had a great little exhibit in the bone hall where you could point your iPad at certain exhibits. It was the, it's called the bone hall because it's all skeletons. And if you point your iPad at one of the skeletons, up will pop an animation of the creature fully fleshed. So if you look at a fish skeleton, you'll see the fish swimming along. There'll be audio with it, and video, and that kind of thing. Really, really nice exhibit. Well, what if you could do this for a whole campus? You walk across it with your, with your tablet computer or your phone or your glasses, depending on the technology involved, and you can see more stuff. So imagine, for example, being able to look at a building say, I wonder if Professor Bonney is there. And then you could quickly get information about the office, you know, who's there in general, kind of directory, as well as other information on who's actually physically there at one moment, if they want to have the information revealed. Imagine looking at a library and consulting the catalog as you look at it to see if a book is actually on the shelf. And then if it is, you can see the way through the stacks and the shelves and the elevators and the stairs to get right there. And then you can imagine other things that happen in campus. So, for example, imagine a classroom with completely blank walls because everyone involved has some form of AR tech and they can see things projected there in their, again, on their phones or on their glasses or on their tablet computers. And imagine people going through campus and they're having a video conference or an audio conference, say a podcast discussion, just like we're doing right now, but they're talking with someone who they can see through their glasses, but nobody else can see. Imagine covering the campus with art you know, so students could put up a sculpture or a giant map or a giant figure or the mascot from their you know, from their sport. See, you trying to learn athletics. And they can have that available on campus in the digital realm that you can see with your glasses, but no one else can see unless they have access to it. I mean, you can add more and more content to that, basically you're kind of laminating your, your campus, the entire second layer. And this can include campus services So think about mental health. You could think about classes. I mean, you could just really add more and more layers to it. I mean, I think technically right now, 80% of that we could do tomorrow, and then we could do the other 20 in the next few years if we want to. I mean, imagine, too, if your campus is older than, say, 10 years, you may have items of historical value that you'd like to show. Imagine being able to toggle a view of your campus like it was in 1850 or 1920 and be able to just, you know, add and subtract sort of those values. Imagine being able to do that with where, the area around your campus. What was there before that building? What was the first building on campus, and what did the campus look like when that was the only one there? You know, being able to have that kind of timeline value would just be amazing to have. So I, I think for campuses, especially as they enter a more competitive environment, they might want to do this because it might bring forth more value for being physically there, as well as taking advantage of the technology.
0: I love that you shared too. That so much of it is possible today. We had a great episode with Jamie Hanans, a nursing professor at California State University Channel Islands, and she's I, I'm, she's describing these things in nursing where I think, oh, and then and then each for each one she'd say, and well, here's the tools we're using, and it's just amazing what can happen with existing technologies as well as what's to come down the road. It's it's truly remarkable. This is the point in the show where we each get to give recommendations. I have two of them, and one of them is an article about sex role stereotyping of college professors. It's kind of a follow-up to an episode that we did with Kelly Hogan and VG Sathy. This is about bias in student ratings of instructors, and I'll probably put it in the show notes for that episode as well as just having it in the recommendations, but I think it's a good one it doesn't tell us anything. We don't already know if you've been listening to information about student evaluations in our courses, but I do just think an ongoing accumulation accumulation is not a word.
1: Accumulation.
0: <laughs> accumulation. I'm here making up words as the studio gets increasingly hot here. I'm like, did the air conditioning shut off? I don't know. So. You're doing
1: great.
0: <laughs> And then the next one I want to recommend, uh, this episode is actually going to air in December, so this will have been out for a while. But if you missed it, I want you to go back and watch this wonderful video from Mike Wesh, And he talks about teaching without walls, 10 tips for online teaching. I did write an article for Ed Surge. I have a monthly advice column and that one was about, you know, do active learning approaches really scale? Can we really yeah. engage learners in large classes? And he was one of the exemplar faculty that I profiled in that. And then right after the episode was done being recorded, he came out with this great 10 tips for online teaching. He really just takes, whenever I watch his videos, it feels like you're going on an adventure with him. And it's just you and him. Maybe there's a couple of other people there, but his stuff really scales, is incredibly engaging. Yeah. And he doesn't call things assignments. In this particular case, I think this class calls them challenges, but it just feels like you're mm-hmm. going to be exposed to these great adventures and you're going to get to go on it and, and take yourself on some too and report back in. He really brings the online world just alive in ways that so very few do. So I'm going to link to both of these things in the show notes. And then Brian, I know you have a couple of things to share with us as well.
1: No, I just got to say, Mike is awesome. I think mean, he does fantastic work. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's a good friend that I think, yeah, I mean, he just always does great, powerful videos. And is, there are very, very few teachers that are this visionary and passionate at the same time. So I have two recommendations really, really quickly. One is a book that I'm teaching for the first time. It's called Diffusion of Innovations by Everett Rogers. And this is kind of the locus classicus for how innovation moves and succeeds or fails. It's a meticulous book. It's in its fifth edition now. It's hugely influential, but almost nobody in ed tech ever talks about it. It's uh, just a wonderful study of how people choose to pick up an innovation or choose to refuse it. Uh, the examples are from all over the place, literally geographically from all over the world and from all kinds of domains. The second pick, and this is based on augmented reality, I think about how much I love my students. So this summer I taught an insane class on emerging technology and education. So not just current technologies, technologies that are just popping out. So some of them included uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, gaming, 3D printing. So two of the students had a final project that was one of the most creative I've ever seen. So they learned how to do 3D printing. We have a great, great maker hub here in that uh, Georgetown. And so they decided they were going to do a work about printing. So they dove into the archive. They've never done 3D printing before. Right? This is just them learning this as they went. They dove into all the 3D file archives they could find. They found some models, 3D models, of the early Gutenberg presses from the early 15th century. So they printed those out. So maybe six inches by four inches by eight inches tall. And then they printed out plates Mm -hmm. so they could slide them in and then actually print stuff with the printing press. So for their presentation in class, they brought a big roll of butcher paper, put it on the desk, gave everybody ink, gave everybody little, little pieces of paper they could put in these plates, put them in, and everyone in the class got to print a single sheet this way. One of the things you could print was a QR code. So that's, again, for the those who don't know that, that's a little small square, black and white little squares within it. And if you put your device as a QR reader built in, you can look at it, and it takes you to something interesting. In this case, it took you to a 60-page augmented reality essay-slash-exploration about printing and publishing in education. Can I just say the whole class was six weeks long, and they managed to do this in the last two weeks? I mean... It's just astonishing. So how did the augmented reality thing work? You took your phone, you pointed it at a QR code or the URL, and floating in your phone would be one of the students telling you about something, showing you an image of something, giving you quotes, and game-like, you could work your way through it, or like a tutorial. and see so you learn about this form of printing, what paperback printing meant in the 20th century, and so on. So one of my picks is my awesome students.
0: Oh, love it. Is any of this available online, or I mean... And it available publicly, or did they choose to keep it behind the...
1: That's wall? a great question. And here, I will send you right now one of the links. And so you can use that Thanks. and put it in the show notes.
0: Brian, it has been so lovely to reconnect with you today. And I am looking forward to finishing your book. And I'm looking forward to other people picking it up because it is going to be a wonderful resource for people. So I should add that back in as my other recommendation is to pick up Brian's book. And just thank you so much for your time today, Brian.
1: Well, Thank you. The book is called Academia Next. It is from Johns Hopkins University Press, which is a wonderful publisher. And I'm really grateful to them for all of their support, all of their help. And I'm really looking forward to the conversations that I hope the book can inspire. And I'm really grateful to you, Bonnie. It's always a delight talking with you. Thank you so much for the privilege of being on your program.
0: Thank you, Brian Alexander, for being a guest on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed and for sharing about your new book called Academia Next. We're all looking forward to reading it. Of course, by the time people hear this, I will have been well past that <laughs> deadline. If you'd like to access some of the links that are in the show notes today, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 288. You are also, as always, welcome to sign up for the weekly update where you will most, most weeks get access to the show notes from the most recent episode, as well as an article about teaching or productivity written by me. Thanks so much for being a part of this community, and I'll see you next time.